Hey, it's Eric Newcomer, the host of Newcomer. The Silicon Valley just blew up, or at least Silicon Valley Bank just blew up. So I called in an audible, rescheduled the podcast guest and invited on Lawrence Tosi, the former CFO of Blackstone, the former CFO of Airbnb, former chief operating officer of Merrill Lynch. This is a real behind the scenes player, someone I go to to gut check ideas and to figure out what's really happening in Silicon Valley. As he'll tell you on this podcast, he spent the weekend talking to members of Congress and bank executives to try and figure out what's going on and what's been going on and why Silicon Valley Bank unraveled. What's this mean for Silicon Valley going forward? Uh, Certainly, I think a dot-com style bus looks much more plausible now that we've got our big bank explosion. So stick around, listen. I think it's a fantastic episode. Thanks. Welcome to Newcomer. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure, Eric. Thanks for asking me. It has been the craziest period in tech. I don't know. COVID maybe rivals it, or where would you score this in terms of wild periods for private technology companies? It has probably been the most volatile five-year period I think we've ever seen, through including right before the pandemic, the pandemic itself, the recovery, the hype cycle, if you will, in the public markets, then the dramatic crash, and now, of course, the infrastructure crumbling underneath the industry. It's been remarkable. Right. These last few days in particular, I mean, some of the fastest moving I've ever seen, I feel like. I think that's true. I mean, I was chief operating officer at Merrill in 2007, and then I was one of the senior partners and CFO of Blackstone in 2008. And to be honest, Eric, it felt like I was right back there. <laughs> what the last week has felt like. You know, rate hikes have a deteriorating effect. And I think the Fed really was late. The rate stayed too low for too long. We overstimulated the economy. That led to really the tech bubble that you saw. Then you had a valuation crash first. After the valuation crash, you usually then have a period of stagnation and then eventually declining growth, which you're seeing now. You're seeing lots of downward revisions. And what really happened here was that the rates rose so fast that it actually did an enormous amount of damage to the banking infrastructure. So before you even get the Silicon Valley Bank, there's $600 billion of unrealized losses on bank balance sheets across the US. So this is one of those latent effects of a fast rate rise and the aggression of the Fed broke the system. Right, okay, so your financial experience plus you know, CFO of Airbnb, now sort of a major investor, seeing it both on the fund side and directly someone who helps me understand things behind the scenes wanted to bring you on to really translate this for everybody about what's happening. This has been such a confusing period that I think we're going to try and keep it as chronological as possible just so people can follow it. So starting at the beginning, I think you laid it out. The biggest picture event that's happened is this sort of interest rate hike that sort of set the stakes here, right? Is that the starting gun, if you will? That's right. I think think it actually starts with this. The economy in December of 2019 was very strong, as strong as we'd seen in years. And the Fed was poised then to begin raising rates. The pandemic hit six weeks later, and that gave people pause. About three months later, we started seeing the stimulus going into the economy. Obviously, it was an election cycle, had a lot to do with it as well. And in a lot of ways, you overstimulated the economy, but rates remained low. That began what I would call the hype cycle. Into 20, coming out of the pandemic, into late 20 and early 21, you saw multiples for technology companies expand to levels that we'd never seen before. You know, tech companies that would trade at eight to 10 times revenues were trading at 25, 30, and even more, both in the public and private markets. 
And late 20, you saw a really good IPO market moving into 21, and then it inverted. When the public markets, tech markets went down, then the private markets followed shortly after about six months. So this has really been a cycle, Eric, that's been in place for a couple of years. So what happened? Then the Fed started raising rates later than they probably should have. They'd been too low for too long, which created a lot of distortions. And then they super aggressively went at the rate rise, basically from zero all the way to 4.75 right. in just over a year. And that always has a latent effect. The GDP of the country usually feels more pain in the second year after rate rises than in the first. And I think that's what we're seeing now. All right. So one character, you know, the Fed and interest rates, but probably the main character that everybody is following here is Silicon Valley Bank. What are they doing like 2020, 2021? Just give us a little bit of like where Silicon Valley Bank sits in, I guess, the boom time ecosystem of Silicon Valley in 2021. So, so let's just think about their size. First of all, incredibly unique business model around for 40 years had really been the go-to key bank for the venture community. Not just venture, but venture and growth. And really, actually, not just the companies, but a lot of the firms themselves. So you could say it was a critical part of the ecosystem. And much like the hype cycle of money pouring into technology at the end of the pandemic and the market's hot and like a lot of IPOs, Silicon Valley Bank skyrocketed. They went from about $60 billion in assets in 2020 to $106 billion in 2021 to $211 billion on December 31st of last year, which is a remarkable amount of growth by any institution. And that's just driven by record fundraising levels, record exit levels, and just the general technology economy exploding. And then they were definitely the beneficiary of that because they were the best position. I don't think any bank comes close to me. Think about this, Eric. If you had said five years ago that Silicon Valley Bank would be the 16th largest bank in the U.S., I don't think anybody would believe you because they would say, well, it's a little bit more niche. and or it's, <laughs> Right. Wine and startups. The key piece of this is that startups are raising these enormous rounds. I mean, we saw a proliferation of $100 million rounds in 2021. They take that money and some of them are just putting that into Silicon Valley Bank, right? And then Silicon Valley Bank, I think we saw what? Sequoia had like five billion in the bank somehow there. So we've got venture firms that have a lot of money in Silicon Valley Bank too. Is that you know, on that era, first of all, they did a great job. I mean, they really served the community really well. They were really great at relationships. Honestly, everybody I've ever met from that bank, from Silicon Valley Bank, was really professional. They knew what they were doing. And I think the community rewarded them for being there. There's a couple of interesting things that are idiosyncratic about Silicon Valley Bank, though. One is a lot of the venture debt that they lent, they had about a $75 billion loan book. They don't do things like mortgages and what typical banks do, but they did a lot of venture debt. That's a highly unique asset slash liability, I guess. And in it, when they did the $75 billion of lending, they quite often in their terms would say you have to keep 80% of your deposit to the bank. So it was kind of a circular reference in the sense it was creating a dependence of a lot of these small companies on the bank and the way they did business, but they served the community well and they were rewarded by the growth. The venture debt, I think All In you know, made a big deal about the venture debt. And so I am interested how much you think that is at the core of this, but it's a investment that many of the other banks didn't want to do, right? Or what's sort of controversial or challenging about these venture debt deals? So I'll give you an example because we've actually studied some of the term sheets that have come across at some of our businesses, et cetera. We've stayed away from venture debt by and large. I can give you a bunch of reasons why, but I actually think, Eric, venture debt's pretty close to equity, but it's priced as bank debt. So the typical package from like an SVB would have eight to 
paid in kind, not cash interest. It would have very, very broad collateral requirements, exceptionally broad against all assets of the company. They would typically ask for some warrant coverage, about 1% of the loan amount. And they would also ask that 80% of the deposits remain at the bank. So it created a dependency that's quite unusual. You know, we recommend to all of our portfolio companies, they have three or four banks, a mix of regionals and the large national banks, and they do that. But when you think about it, you just said some rounds are 50 to 100 million. If you were to keep under the FDIC limits and you raised $50 million, you would need 200 banks to stay under that limit. So of course that's not feasible. So I think a lot of people just kept keeping their money in Silicon Valley Bank after they raised it. And as their companies grew and the rounds got bigger, I think they just stayed with the relationship because I think they were well-served by the bank. And you know, a key part of Silicon Valley Bank's deal-making was its relationship with like venture capitalists. It was an LP in some VCs. It had the trust of VCs. And so it felt like it could underwrite these debt deals better than other banks because it also could sort of I don't know, go to the venture firm and say, oh, you weren't straight with us or whatever. Is that your impression? Do you think it was that loose or like how much is the relationship between the VCs and Silicon Valley Bank sort of key here? So I think they had very good relationships. I never saw them being loose. They would do their work and they do their due diligence to the companies. But the reality was they were investing in technology companies that are in highly competitive environments. A lot of them are losing money and have extended period of runway before they'll make money. And I actually think in the end, one of the failings might have been they expected the venture capital community or the growth community to backstop, right? Because if you look right. at the clients, Eric, I mean, they own the company. If somebody defaults on one of their one of their loans, I'll go even further. Even before you draw an SVB loan, they have covenants against all of your assets. So effectively, they are a wedge in front of even the preferred equity or common equity. And right. so I think their assumption was there's kind of a moral hazard for the venture capitalists. You're going to have to make sure that Silicon Valley Bank's made whole because if you don't, your equity is wiped out. And right. I think that turned out to be a flawed assumption. That's also, Eric, if I had to guess, that's why they couldn't auction the bank off here in the U.S. because I don't think anyone else would take a $75 billion venture book. I don't know that right. it's all $25 billion venture, but a lot of it's venture. And I don't think anybody else is capable of servicing it. And you know what? That's a 10% returning paper, maybe. That's not mezzanine or even equity level returns. So I'm not sure they were getting paid for the risk they were taking. All right. So we'll get into sort of whether anybody will buy this down the road. But 2021, great year for Silicon Valley Bank. Does a ton of deals, lots of money raised. 2022, I think we see more of these venture debt deals, right? Because startups need them. When they, they, Eric, they didn't want to deal with the valuation. Right. So a lot of, they didn't, as valuations came down in late 22, right? Right. Startups didn't want to deal. They wanted a way to delay. Yeah. It was a kick the can trade. Right. And we were warning companies early last year that that was very dangerous to kick the can. You'd much rather, if you got a good company, valuation changed, take your medicine, raise the equity, it may be more dilutive and get back to work. Trying this, you know, oh, I'm going to do this venture deck because effectively it's blocking the equity. It's like super preferred. And so it actually creates a downdraft even further on valuation. You may think you're preserving your valuation, but you're definitely, you know, impacting yourself to the downside because of the liabilities you're taking on. All right. So then for Silicon Valley Bank, any bank sees that there is some interest rate movement, but <laughs> how do I ask this? Or explain the, the, the mortgage security issue. Uh, sure. Basically, sort of 
Silicon Valley Bank's own style of investing. And I think in particular, touch on this is a bank, but in some ways it's investing, you know, like more of a, an investment firm or, or what are the moves they're making there? Sure. I spent a lot of time thinking about this because I obviously had treasury and risk reporting to me at Blackstone and Merrill. And actually, we'll talk about this later, I actually had a treasury fund at Blackstone where I would actually manage the balance sheets of our portfolio companies. I did the same thing at Airbnb. We carefully managed the balance sheet. At one point, we were making more than $100 million of EBITDA just off of how we managed the balance sheet. So the reality is, treasury, you should never lose money. You should never take directional bets, and you should run a very balanced liquid book. The book should be liquid according to what the demands of the business are, and it should be balanced according to rate shocks or credit exposures. So a typical treasury, this is what's really ironic, Eric, a corporate treasury actually could not put money in Silicon Valley Bank because before this run, it was a double B credit. And typically a corporate treasury has to be an investment grade A credit, A minus credit or above. Hmm. Actually, they couldn't take large cap corporate deposits. Like they couldn't take deposits from a Blackstone portfolio company. So here's what happened. Rates went up so fast that at the same time, Silicon Valley Bank was aggregating so much assets, they had to put it somewhere. And so they made investments in long-term bonds that quickly came underwater when rates went up so much. So let's say they, I think their yield on their 30-year book was in and around two and a half to three and a half percent. And because they were bringing that money in and they were investing it in treasuries, the same time their deposit accounts, they were paying their depositors about 4.6%. Hmm. What happened was when rates, Eric, went from basically zero to 4.75 in such a short period of time, their long-dated treasury book and their mortgage-backed security book was underwater because the rates were lower than you could get with other securities. Now, right. to put it up, in very layman terms, as I understand it, the idea was that if they held these bonds forever till they could be exercised, they would be up, but it would be smaller than if you bought something else on the open market. This is why the mark-to-market issue, right? Because right. if you market-to-market, then you... <laughs> You'd sell it at a loss because nobody wants it because they can get a better deal from what's available today. I mean, probably that, rate. Is that that's close? That's right. So let me explain this way, So in a treasury book, there's two parts of it. There's available for sale, which would be money market, stuff like that, that's shorter term, and that's mark to market. Then there's held to maturity, right? Or held for investment. That means that you can hold that 30-year bond and you can get your two and a half percent interest and you'll get paid out the full principal in the 30th year. The problem with Silicon Valley Bank, as I understand it, was once there was a demand for withdrawals, they needed to go into their held to maturity book, sell $21 billion of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries at a $1.8 billion loss, which, you know, that's 8.5%. It's not a huge loss, but it's unusual to do that, which means that their company was under pressure because they had to dip into what they would have held for a long time and realize right. the losses. Do you, and that do you think the thing. held to maturity distinction makes sense? I mean, part of the reason they want all these assets is if they ever need to liquidate them so they can pay their account holders, they can. Do you have a view on whether the, yeah. any is non-mark-to-market accounting makes sense for a bank like this? Well, it all comes out of judgment call. And the, the judgment is if you put it in your held to maturity book, that should be a capital that you never have to access before it goes to maturity, number one. Number two... 30 years is an awful long time for a bank that's growing at that rate, right? Because they be <laughs> right. 10, but 30 years is an awful lot and you, you're running the risk. And it's very hard at that scale when they have $211 billion in assets, that scale hedging it 
is really almost impossible. So the way you hedge it is you just take shorter term treasuries and you grind through those. And they didn't. And so they had this longer dated book. And also the other thing is 50% of their assets were in these long dated treasuries and agencies. That's a pretty aggressive mix for a bank like this, but it's judgment calls. I mean, we'll never know. I, I wouldn't want to second guess what they were doing, but it appears what they had to do was sell 1.8 billion. That loss hit their equity. At the time they did the sale, their market cap was only 12 billion. And that's a big loss. It's 15% loss of market cap. And then I think the deposit withdrawals just started to accelerate. They were downgraded or they were put on watch by Moody's on March 2nd, on March 3rd. That also began to then crunch their credit and create the more of the withdrawals that you saw. So in November 2022, I believe Green Oaks, it's been reported, sent a letter to their portfolio companies warning a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank. So that I just say that as a data point that there was some concern then. And then I think in January, I think Seeking Alpha, I think another Substack started publishing pieces questioning Silicon Valley Bank or like yeah, is that November, January is when this sort of really started to turn against the bank or how, it, how early? Yeah, it appears, think about it this way. I mean, the objective news we know is that at least by late February, they had to dip into their held to maturity book to get liquidity to make deposits. So, so at that point, it must have been deteriorating for a while. And I give hats off to Neil Meta and the Green Oaks folks. Neil's a great investor. We've done a bunch of things with him. He understands public markets and private markets. And I think he was right to warn the companies to be careful this could change. I mean, remember, it started as a double B bank. So it was starting from a position that had, let's call it a higher risk profile than a typical bank. You know, JP Morgan's double A, First Republic's an A1 or A minus. I mean, those are much higher rated banks by a wide margin. But yes, I would say that in the end, we'll probably find out that the deterioration in deposits began as a crawl and finished with, I think they had, it's been reported that they had $42 billion of redemptions last Thursday. I think and the smart deterioration in deposits at first isn't necessarily all driven by fear of Silicon Valley Bank having problems, right? Part of the That's issue right. is, and SVB talks about this, that you know <laughs> companies kept burning even though they weren't raising as much money. So suddenly they're just burning through their bank accounts in SVB, and suddenly SVB has less money. And to make a really broad point, SVB was sort of double exposed to interest rates going up. The obvious one was they bought these investment vehicles that just had too low of an interest rate and they could have waited or found some other vehicle to optimize for a higher interest rate. And then the second is obviously that the startup industry, which SVB is overweight in, is so exposed to high interest rates, right? It, it thrived in a low interest rate environment and struggled in a high interest rate environment. And so SVB, if anything, should have been hedging and preparing for a downturn in a world where interest rates went up. Would you add I think, I think that's that? a good way. It's almost like an echo effect, Eric, as you point out. There were a bunch of factors. Their client base was weakening on the corporate side. The firms, the funds, were slowing down fundraising and funding new companies. Valuations were going down because they were under pressure to interest rates. Their book was deteriorating because they were mismatched on both maturity and liquidity and the interest rate. But I'll leave out one other thing too, is that it just wasn't that attractive. When rates you were able to get, just think about this, just last week, you could get 5.07% on a two-year treasury. So even if Silicon Valley Bank was giving people four and a half, there were better options in the market. Eric, so I would say that there was, and that's what's happening with a lot of the regional banks. I think people were just moving money to higher yielding opportunities with less risk. Right. 
The banks thought their customers would be sticky. <laughs> Turns out they're going to chase the best interest rate they can, which makes us very competitive and, and difficult. And what's interesting, you, and you, you know, you're a leader in this space. I mean, the Silicon Valley bank is in the middle of an ecosystem that's pretty close, meaning once the run started, it's not like thousands of VCs need to move for this thing to collapse pretty quickly. It's, right. it's only hundreds because there's scale players. You know, 80% of the assets are in the top 30 firms. And so I think it moved pretty quickly and the rumors started going around and I was getting texts and emails and stuff inbounds to our companies last week. And then came the interesting thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. When does the run start in your mind? Do you have a date or? So the first time we started seeing people approach our companies, other investors approach our companies, you know, first of all, we want treasury centralized. So we were way ahead. So we didn't have any of this exposure. That means you can see all your companies sort of bank accounts. built a proprietary system. I built it when I was at Blackstone. It's called iLevel that most of the industry uses. And you can load into it real-time information from companies so you know where their treasury cash is by bank, by amount, by interest rate. And we have a full treasury practice. In fact, we have our own money market fund, et cetera, that we offer. And so one of the things we do when we underwrite a company is we make sure they do treasury right, that they diversify their deposit base, that they have the right asset liability match and that they you know move away. So it wasn't really an issue for us. There was some exposure, but we moved quickly. Here's one I saw in there. I'd say starting last Tuesday was the first time I started seeing VCs calling our company saying- So this is March 7th, right? That's March 7th or 6th yeah. and 7th. I started seeing VCs calling the company saying, hey, where are your deposits? What do you have right. with SVB? And it was interesting, Eric. There seemed to be like two teams. One was- keep your deposits, everything's fine. And some of those firms were telling their portfolio companies that through Thursday. And some of them were like, move quickly and get out. And so I mean, Peter Thiel, it seems very clear. And some, at least some of Founders Fund was on the move out. I mean, do you have a sense of, I'm trying to think who else. I mean, USV, I think even before last week, had worn their portfolio companies, Fred Wilson. Yeah, I mentioned Green Oaks. I'm trying to think if I've left anyone notable out that's been public about this. Well, the, I can tell you the buyout firms, which are, were not yeah. considered part and would not be doing business with SVB, but the buyout firms began last week taking assets away from regional banks. All hmm. right, so, the, so other industries were doing, because the buyouts usually use regional banks because it's a cheaper source of funding. So they'll use you know, PNC or something like that. So they started pulling out and moving to the money center banks. There's kind of, there's three tiers of banks. There's community banks, then you've got the middle tier banks, which would be considered like a Silicon Valley bank. They're huge. And then you have the top five banks that are what they call systemically important banks or SIBs. They have a different set of rules and expenses around. That's banks above $250 billion, and then $500 billion is the other break point. J.P. So Morgan, Bank of America, City, Wells Fargo. Interestingly, so think about this. 60% of all deposits in U.S. banks are above $250,000 because the FDIC was set up in 1933 as part of Glass-Steagall. It is clearly an anachronism. And I think when people realized, wait a minute, I could be an uninsured depositor. And clearly all the, you know, most of the venture companies have a lot more than 250000 in Silicon Valley Bank. That created like a tinderbox that I think people moved to protect really quickly. And the run happened really quickly. They had a hundred and word word spread so quickly, right? I think Andreessen Horowitz founders were messaging each other, you know, saying, "Hey, like, if you see one big company, you know, pull their money from SVB, then it just becomes it becomes a game theory problem." I mean, I talked about this in my newsletter before 
everything blew up. It's just like, even if you don't really want to support the run on the bank, it's just like as an individual player, it makes sense to defect. You know, it feels logical to be safe. Like, why do you want to take some big stance and risk your money here, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, it seems like a simple game theory problem to me. You're absolutely right, Eric. It's a painful decision when you've got a relationship with a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, but in the end, we're all fiduciaries. And as fiduciaries, you have to protect your investors. The investors have to come first. And if you believe there's a risk surface you can't analyze or you're fearful of, you have to move. And I think that's when you saw like the cascading. I mean, they had 175 billion in deposits at the end of last year. That's the last reported amount. If it is, in fact, true in the press reports that they had a 42 billion pulled on Thursday, there had to be another 20, 30 billion before that. And so you're looking at half their deposit base was probably out. And then the other thing is with receivership. So technically, the bank, SVB, went into receivership at 8.44 Friday morning. They stopped processing wires after three o'clock on Thursday. But there's a difference. Had there not been the intervention of the government, there's a difference between someone who submitted a wire on Thursday and someone who didn't until after receivership. And I think people do that. Silicon Valley Bank, in my view, sort of bungled the communication with investors, right? I mean, if we talk about the government not communicating much, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank basically raised the money, announced money, announced a deal with General Atlantic that was contingent on other fundraising right as what is Silvergate was failing, right? So it was, you know, it was like a dark time for banks. And then they announced this at the worst time. It's not all buttoned up. And then they get all the VCs on the phone. And they, I mean, from what we've seen in like the information report is basically they say, we're fine unless all of you guys panic. And it's like, if you're a VC, it's like, well, we are all panicking right now. So while that's somewhat reassuring, if you're saying, well, we're not fine if everyone behaves irrationally and you look around and everybody's behaving irrationally, you're sending yourself in the sprawl of your own demise. So what would you say about how SVB management handled the, the crisis. So hard to, and I really hesitate. I think the whole community should be careful with what they assume and what they, what they do. You already have Liz Warren saying, oh, I'm going to put them all on a stake. Like that's not helpful. Like, it's just right. not helpful. It was a confluence of events that was very hard to manage. I mean, you had the downgrade or at least the signal downgrade from double B to double B minus. You had the sale of securities, which obviously meant they were under enormous withdrawal pressure at that point. Then you have the financing. I mean, General Atlantic's an amazing firm. They do great work. They were willing to step in. They were right to make their funding contingent on filling out the full $2.25 billion. And then, you know, Greg Becker got on that 10-minute call that you just referenced. But all our interactions with Greg, he's been a, he's a decent person. He was just complimenting on what a business he built six months ago when we met. I think it with all the best of intentions, and then he left that dangling participle out there of, well, unless, and... I think when these things happen, a bank run is a bank run. It's not, it's not rational. It's not, doesn't make sense. The math doesn't matter. You can point to all you want. And I had a couple of conversations with some regional bank heads over the weekend and I urged them like, you can't say enough or do enough. You've got to get out there. You've got to keep hammering it home because there's just so much misinformation and we all communicate so quickly. I mean, people are texting each other. You out, you out, boom, gone. And so that's we, the We just reality. don't live in this world of like control anymore, right? You can right. imagine this cycle playing out a decade or two decades ago, the venture firms would have been able to sort of meet with each other and say, hey, we're going to like show support. Right. The media would have been much more reluctant to like 
talk about runs. Like I tried to not fuel the run and say like, okay, this is already a thing. So I'm going to talk about it. But because, you know, just a few weeks ago, I think there was a similar case with one of Mercury's bank where there was some fear, uncertainty and doubt. And then, you know, it was fine. But because there's no media control is my point. It's much easier for these rumors to start all over Twitter. So you have the lack of VC control, lack of media control. And so rumors and and message boards and and sort of direct communication is so powerful for sure and a little bit I mean, less controlled and that, and that if you watch what happened in crypto that was it it was one run after another run after another run i mean who would have ever thought you'd ever run an exchange like ftx exchange should have segregated accounts but it happened because they didn't have the accounts so i agree with you this is to be analyzed like the speed with which this happened, and this is the conversation I had with both politicians and some of the bank executives over the week on the speed with which this has happened, the depth of the misinformation, and even the seniority of the people trafficking. I mean, I had one very senior venture capitalist and one very senior CEO of a public company literally text me the exact same misinformation about one of the banks over the weekend. And to a point where they're like, the FTIC is this branch. So clearly it was making circles and both right. dead rock. And so I agree with you. That's why I made the comment about, and I was talking about this with Representative Connor yesterday, there needs to be a facility. Think about it. if a stock gets a run and it's too volatile, they stop it, right? They have these breakers. There should be a breaker if there's a run in one of these banks. And that breaker would be the ability for the bank to immediately tap the Fed to be able to pay these depositors. And you know what? Make it a T-bill. <laughs> Give, pay back the depositors and charge the bank whatever the going rate for a two-year bond is. And, right. And, and just keep that out there because this is going to keep happening if this just misinformation gets out there. It's, it's incredible. Was there a skill in getting the money out? It felt like, you know, smaller individual companies struggled. There is definitely a sort of a game of trying to figure out how to get the money out. There is. We did have a couple of our small companies, smaller investments had some exposure and, you know, we have a treasury desk, so we just immediately moved as fast as we could. This is earlier in the week. And we felt like we were really around the Moody's downgrades when we started really paying attention to it. There is some art to it because if you've got people that know how to get to the bank, how to get to the people at the bank and get out quickly, unfortunately, that is how it works. The site didn't go down until I think they stopped about, as I said, about three o'clock on Thursday. That became a big issue. Some people didn't move until after that. And thankfully, the government stepped in. I wrote about people... Friday morning, you know, going to the New York office of Silicon Valley Bank and like trying to get into the point, you know, very friendly police officers were brought in to tell people that you know, they couldn't go into the office. So a pretty dramatic yeah. scene. Just to pause on Silicon Valley Bank, I get this sense that the bank thought like its relationships with VCs would protect it from like defectors, if that's the word I'm using, you know, and there clearly were some VCs that were trying to put their relationship with the bank first. What's your view on that? It's such a hard question, Eric, because, you know, even with the best of intentions, you do have that tension between your fiduciary duty to your investors and your loyalty to the bank. And I think that by Thursday, it was pretty clear that things were getting out of hand. And I'm sure if left to its own devices, I mean, I'm sure that Silicon Valley Bank would have done everything they could have for their investors. And that gets into the question, Eric, of did the government wait too long? So then on Friday, and this is where we start to talk about the government. California declares that Silicon Valley Bank had failed and brings in the FDIC, right? And then we basically have, that's, that's Friday, right? Or is that Saturday? It starts, it starts let's, let's use this term, Eric. It starts the 60-hour clock. 
right? <laughs> the 60-hour clock is from the filing at 844 PST Friday to the announcement from Treasury yesterday. Right. So then we have this collective panic on Twitter. Basically, the issue is that, you know, obviously everyone is protected up to $250,000. But after that, they're basically like debt holders. And so they get paid out from the bank's actual assets as the government liquidates them. My sense is the vast, vast majority of banks that have failed have seen depositors get fully covered, right? But despite that, there seemed to be a ton of concern within Silicon Valley about depositors not getting covered. Why do you think this was exceptional? So a couple things. You're right. Let me take one thing you said that you're absolutely right on. The last time I can remember a depositor losing money in a bank failure was probably the savings and loan crisis. In all of the great financial crisis, not a single depositor lost a single dollar in it. But the, frankly, inaction of the government and their lack of saying anything. So Silicon Valley Bank had almost a $958 billion deficit by the time they filed it on Friday morning. And obviously, once you have that deficit, the match between redemptions of deposits and your ability to liquidate assets to meet them, then at that moment, the government was not signaling that it would step in. You know, we've heard a lot for the last few years about too big to fail and we don't want any more bailouts. And there's an underlying social thing here, Eric. There's a real antipathy from the government towards Silicon Valley, towards technology companies, towards venture capitalists. And I think that there was a fear that the government just wouldn't step in. And I think we could talk about the events over the weekend. I think what you saw yesterday afternoon was brought to you very begrudgingly and reluctantly and maybe too late to contain some of the damage. Because if you really think about it, Silicon Valley Bank wasn't, it was just had a liquidity crunch. If they had extended the, what they call the Fed window, Eric, which allows a bank like uh, Silicon Valley Bank to pledge assets. So they could have taken those long-dated treasuries under the new plan they just announced yesterday. They could have taken those long-dated securities, put them back to the Fed at par, which in itself is a bailout, could have put them back at par, gotten liquidity, and made the redemptions. But for some reason, the government decided, well, we're going to let that one go, and we'll see what the contagion is. And that, I think, will be remembered as the biggest mistake. Because over the next 60 hours... You had a real erosion of faith in deposits. Like you, you think they shouldn't have let SUB fail in the first place? They should have taken those assets? I don't know that they shouldn't have put them in receivership because okay. I think that those rules are hard to break. But what they should have done is what immediately said, we'll honor all deposits because the assets were there, Eric. It's not like the bank, like a savings and loan. Right. The underlying assets fell apart because it was real estate and stuff. The assets were there, including those elongated securities. They should have said, okay, we have the assets will pledge more of them to the Fed window and then help them through the liquidity crisis and no depositors will lose money. If they said what they said yesterday, in conjunction with the receivership on Thursday, the world would be a very different place and the loss of jobs and the damage to the economy would be much more limited. But that's not what they did. As of yesterday morning, and I spent a lot of time on the phone over the weekend with both senators, congresspeople, because obviously I've seen this before, the government was not going to make the decision of that announcement as of Sunday morning, when Secretary Yellen went on Face the Nation, if you listen to her words, she had no interest in a bailout, was not going to come to any help, and was saying, the system's fine. She was wrong. And by later in the afternoon, I think she capitulated, and I think they realized they had to do something or the contagion would be much bigger. And that still can't stem the damage done over the prior 60 hours. Just as a personal anecdote, after 
SVB failed, you know, my small newcomer Mercury account, you know, I moved money out of that into a Chase account just to be safe. So just as a pure anecdotal experience, you can sort of feel it like over the weekend, people are like, uh, why not be in a big bank? You know, it's just like the incremental value of a small bank. Even if you know you're going to get your money back, it's just like, I don't want, you know, the hassle of not having access to my money when I need it. I guess the big question here in terms of the government's action is like, how much was this an SVB specific problem, right? SVB specific in their sort of decisions in terms of investments, SVB specific in terms of their exposure to startups, and then SVB specific in that they had customers that seemed like loudly, you know, telling everybody to bail. And like if other regional banks didn't have that same sort of I don't know, network of communication, would that have happened? I I think there's evidence against that. So what's your view in terms of how SVB specific this was? I think SVB was unique, but not idiosyncratic. It was unique in the industry it served. It was probably unique that the ecosystem is relatively concentrated. It was certainly unique that their loan book included venture. I mean, really when they compete for venture, there's not really any other banks that underwrote venture debt like that, Eric. What they would compete with on term sheets would be alternative asset managers you know, that do that, like like right. funds. So they were unique. The other thing that happens, this was the 16th largest bank. I think people forgot that you know a few years ago it wasn't top 100 and now it's 16. And so its size and scale was bigger than I think. And the government just, they didn't move fast enough to at least assuage the concerns. And folks did exactly what you did, Eric. They're like, well, why wouldn't I go to Money Center Bank? The issue now is, we're going to drive more concentration risk with the top banks, which would create more too big to fail. It's exactly the opposite of the policy of helping the system. Now, in the end, the government did the right thing. And I think everyone is safe now across all the banks. That's great. But you have to go back and look at what damage was caused and what assets moved around in the meantime. The government on Sunday announced that they would cover depositors across the banks and that they would take some of these long-held assets, right? We talked about that. Yep. They also, at the same time, they announced one additional bank failure, right? So Signature, right. Eric, is a pretty... Now, that is an idiosyncratic bank. Signature <laughs> has a long, crypto bank, right? Uh, they do take some crypto. Signature's long been in the eyes of the regulators. They struggled in 2008 because they had a lot of real estate debt. They were very concentrated in commercial real estate in the tri-state area. They were taking some crypto. There was a back and forth, so that was no surprise to anyone. Silicon Valley Bank was a surprise, for sure. Like, do you think First Republic, if the government had taken no action, do you think First Republic would have been? Well, they're, they're unique. They're one of these collateral damage just by rumor and other things. I mean, right, because their well, stock I, price was down. They're somewhat stock started. Stock price was down. I thought, honestly, I saw some pretty irresponsible communications to some of our companies by other investors saying, oh, it's First Republic's next. I mean, just totally irresponsible. Like, right. actually misinformation such as their FDIC at their branches. First Republic is $70 billion of liquidity. It's always been a really well-managed bank. They're fine. They were always fine. It's just the perception thing you can't hurt. And of course, that impacted their stock price. But it's always been a very steady bank. It's an A-minus rated bank. It's the same as Goldman Do you think without government action, it still would have been fine? Or you? I do. Or, I think they yeah. would, absolutely, they would have gotten. Then what is the contagion? If Signature was a sort of unique, already troubled bank, if the one that was sort of perceived as next in line was probably going to be okay, then why not just let Silicon Valley Bank customers get paid out the old-fashioned way off the assets of SVB? 
First of all, the thing they opened yesterday, which they call the Bank Treasury Funding Program, is the same thing that existed in 2008. As I was saying, the Fed opens up its windows. You could pledge assets. Not that back then it was mark to market. Now it's par, which is effectively a bailout. Effectively, this is really interesting. The Fed is admitting that they raised rates too fast and they created 600 billion of unrealized losses in these banks. Hmm. And they're saying, oh, give it back to me at par, even though it's not worth par. So right. if Silicon Valley Bank had that facility available last week, they would have pledged the 21 billion. They would have gotten 21 billion, not 21 billion minus 1.8 billion in losses, and we'd be in a different position. So I think the problem with the government is they were too reactive, not proactive, and now they've put in place things that could be helpful. But I'll, I'll go to the, the psychology point. You actually said it perfectly in your own words. Why not? Why not move from a regional bank to one of these bigger systemic banks? And I think that's the longer term thing that the government is going to have to grapple with because, you know, I think these programs are going to have to be permanent. In terms of like culpability, Silicon Valley Bank lobbied successfully the Trump administration to lower the sort of the standards for a regional bank like Silicon Valley Bank, right? I mean, in terms of <laughs> the regulatory regime to protect consumer confidence in the bank, SVB management intentionally undermined it. I mean, do, do you disagree? Yeah, I'm not, I would disagree with that a little bit, Eric. I, I don't know specifically the conversations what they lobbied for. I would just say the 2018 Act, I think the argument from the regional banks like a Silicon Valley Bank was that the onerous regulations and requirements and capital requirements that were put in place in 2008 were limiting their ability to serve smaller businesses. And I think that's really where it was coming from. You're saying, look, I can't have the same thing as JP Morgan. And if it's a little bit looser, then I'll be able to serve the growth of the community. I, I think it was more a genuine interest in that. And that's, that's was the intent. Obviously, that meant that maybe the boundaries of that were pushed and they turned out to create risk surfaces that now come to Right. Down. I mean, <laughs> and thank you for answering to some of the arguments the whole Valley is going to face. But I mean, Larry Summers, you know, tweeted out something that was like, now is not the time to worry about moral hazard, you know, over the weekend when the government was debating this decision. And if anything, that gave me such like a negative reaction because it's always, you know, when something's inconvenient and uncomfortable that people want to abandon holding actors accountable for moral hazard. Obviously, Silicon Valley bank management would prefer to have like an existing bank that they can continue to get paid by. And like, that's their careers. But, you, you know, it, we are in some ways incentivizing people to take more risk, run an aggressive strategy, get paid well. And then, you know, if the government picks up the pieces when everything falls apart, I mean. It's such a conundrum, right? Because you can make right. arguments on both sides. They should or they shouldn't. Interestingly enough, Summers was saying last week, SVB was just isolated incident. With Not Chris systemic, Chris. exactly. So you, how do you square those? And yeah. then, he, then he turned his mind. Do you, know right. was, do you know who played a critical role in this? There's a young congressman that covers the district where Silicon Valley Bank was named, Ro Khanna. I spoke yeah. to him actually. He was exactly what you'd want for a representative. He was super well-informed. He went on Face the Nation the same time Yellen did. He was much more articulate and convincing that the contagion would cost jobs and hurt the larger economy. And we shouldn't thumb our noses at bailing out bankers. Forget about the executives. It's all about the clients, really. And he was very articulate and he was tenacious over the weekend. And I think he had a big role to play in how they tied the term because as of yesterday morning, they weren't going to do anything. And today would have been a cataclysm. I'm glad they did something. I still think they moved too late. And I think they need permanent rules that just 
help banks with liquidity crunches. You should never bail them out of bad behavior if they make bad loans and stuff like that. But if it's just simply a mismatch because they've got a conservative balance sheet and they need to meet depositors and there's a run, they should have a way to do that with a permanent facility that allows this. And, and that will be something I think that they need to look at. I've been going back and forth all day trying to lobby for that. And to the extent that people are fighting on Twitter about whether it's a bailout, like, I feel like that, who cares? You know, it's like depositors got bailed out, not shareholders, not the executive. We sort of right. all understand, like, what happened there. Uh, so I, I feel like you know, I'm not going to get into the, the equity and the bondholders got wiped out. Right. So that, the, so paid 40 billion a year ago. Now it's zero. Does the government really have to move so fast? I mean, it was Friday to Sunday. I am sympathetic to Biden and, you know, the Fed and all that. In that, you know, you need a couple of days to think about these things, right? Is is the standard they needed to have a solution like Friday? Yeah. No, I, I was thinking more like this, sir. First of all, the rules worked because once they were in default, they were in a receivership in the blink of an eye. So that process worked. Although, as I pointed out before, the FDIC is an anachronism. It's just not effective for a world where the capital's at the levels it is now. And I, I do sympathize with the administration trying to figure out what to do. I just think there should have been something in place so they could access the liquidity rather than having to sell that kind of securities in right. this environment at a loss. That's all I'm saying. I, don't, I agree with the bailouts. I don't believe in the bailout, but just giving them liquidity would have avoided a lot of this. Yeah. The other solution would have just been a buyer, right? Or like maybe a buyer comes, but like right now it seems like they're trying to sell it piece by piece, right? Or why won't anyone buy... We saw what was it? The UK version of Silicon Valley Bank did get acquired, right? By it did. Yeah. I believe. I believe it's to be acquired by HSBC. Yeah. You know, as soon as this started happening, part of our risk analysis when we were looking at it early, well, over the last month or so, was that you couldn't see a buyer for this one because I'll get back to that seventy-five billion dollar loan book. I just don't think it's something that you can analyze. Like, what does? a $20 million loan to a money-losing technology company that's not paying current interest, but that pays interest in kind, what does that mean? I think in this kind of free fall on tech valuations, I don't think anybody knew. So I'm actually not surprised that they weren't able to do it. And it might have been in the end, Eric, we may find out that the final straw was that when the bids were due at 2 p.m. EST yesterday, that they were underwhelming or not at all. And it was only, what, three hours later that the Fed came out with their joint announcement. I want to move on to the broader effect, but do you think without like the run, without the dynamic of everybody texting each other, like in a short period of time that this was in trouble, do you think Silicon Valley Bank still fails at some point? I mean, they had, I mean, that's so hard. I don't really have the sense for that kind of thing. It's like, okay, they have these challenge holdings, their startup investments, nobody else would make. Like, does this play out the same way, just slower if there isn't sort of the fear? So hard to tell, Eric. It's, it's so hard to tell. I think they are very unique in the fact that they were so exposed to a single ecosystem. That will be the thing that will come out. Now, you know, is there a role for a viable bank that lends to the venture community and all these great entrepreneurs and ideas? Sure. Is that the right format, the way they did venture debt and stuff like that? I just don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think we're going to see another Silicon Valley bank. though. I don't think anybody's going to try to recreate that. Great framing for the next set of questions. So we survived the depositor risk, but like what tools will startups not have, VCs not have now that SVB is gone, right? I mean, it was a key part of the ecosystem without it, especially if you're saying nobody's going to step in to do some of the same things. What are the things that are going away here? This is the hardest part, Eric. 
because there's no question and by some reports they were covering 50% of startups or what's called venture capital stage companies or maybe even growth stage. So there's no question that we'll leave a giant void. There are some uses of the venture debt that work. So some companies have, you know, seasonal revenues or seasonal expenses, or they have something on their balance sheet that they need to fund that they need for operations. That's an appropriate use of venture debt. And it shouldn't be funded by equity. It should be funded by venture debt. The lines blur when you get to a replacement for equity and it's just a, you know, an accruing note that has all these covenants. That's less productive. We try to avoid that in all of our companies. But there was a productive side of this that was priced correctly. Like, you know, collateralized lending against, you know, could whatever is needed to maintain operations, for example. That's going to be missing. And that means the cost of capital for Silicon Valley is going to go up because they were a cheaper than equity cost of capital. And that hole is gone. I mean, $75 billion is a lot of money in venture debt, if in fact that's what the whole book was. And that will leave a real void. And I think, I don't see that book getting re-underwritten. Now, in a receivership, Eric, you could hold on to those loans until as long as you play by the covenants and they play out over time. Although I'll bet a lot of people breached their covenants last week when they took capital out of Silicon Valley Bank. Exactly. So, you know, the part of the loan covenants that you're referencing was that people had to keep their money in SVB. If they pulled it, they'd be breaking it. So then there was this real decision like, do I break the covenant, take the money, or do I hold the covenant? Do you have a sense? I mean, I guess it would seem given depositors are covered that the people who stuck to the covenant are in a better place or... Is it clear which decision was smarter? Such a great, such a great question, Eric, because I actually had two entrepreneurs call me on this exact issue. My advice was to call the bank, which both <laughs> of them did, and the bank actually said, we'll waive it. Oh, great. Yeah. They would waive it. This is, but this is like Tuesday, Wednesday. They'd right. waive it. If they didn't waive it and you move the cash, now you're in receivership. They may have a technical argument that you, breached it. But my thinking is, I just don't see the receiver saying, well, wait a minute, you breached a covenant by protecting yourself. Therefore, I'm going to call right. you. I, it's hard to say. The last time we had something similar to this would be when Bank of New England went out of business in 1991. And then they put all the loans into something called recall management. And then they worked their way through over years, situation by situation. And you know, obviously, you know, they don't, ex- but they would negotiate longer holds and things like that so they could get more recovery because they're answer now on those loans is to get maximum recovery. So they're not going to go in, call it, and put companies in distress. They're going to work with the companies, at least they did in the case of Bank of New England recall management. They did work through with the companies the way to get the most maximum recovery, which might mean, you know, giving extensions and things like that. Do you think this is going to be a banking story? I mean, obviously, Silicon Valley is obviously going to be affected, but like, do you think we've stemmed, and this is a hard thing to predict, but do you think we've stemmed the bank, the financial piece of this? Or do you think there's a lot more to drop still in terms of the regional banks. It's hard to tell, but those, I mean, that was like taking out a bazooka what the government did. So there shouldn't be any more failures. I think there's a lot of speculation and there are probably a lot of assets moving around and that'll have an impact on value, but there shouldn't be any more speculation on, they have the ability to save it. And I don't think the government's going to let any more banks go. I just don't think that's going to happen. And so it should stabilize. I think if you asked about the headlines for this whole thing, Eric, it's going to be like, Who's going to fill the void for Silicon Valley? Will it increase the cost of capital? You know, should banks take venture debt? What's the government's role in providing liquidity when there's a liquidity crunch? I think those are the type of issues that we're going to be hearing about over the next, the fallout over the next couple of years. 
I mean, a couple months ago, in terms of the Silicon Valley story, you know, I was polling people of whether this was anything like dot com. And most people said, no, you know, it's it's very different. Bill Gurley replied that he thought it was, but then he didn't elaborate. But my point is just that it does feel like a bank failure attached to tech startups just makes it feel much more like, okay, this is a seismic moment. And I've been arguing for a long time, just, and I'm not the only one, that, you know, companies that raise hundreds of millions of dollars fail slowly, right? That, like, it, it takes a long time to show that, you know, those companies aren't working. Do you think this speeds that up? How does this impact the failure rate of growth stage startups? I think it will push values down. I think it will definitely have an impact on values that were already under pressure. I think it will result in some cases, fewer startups making it where they would have had an option like a venture debt or something like that to bridge them. So I, unfortunately, I do think it will have, I dare say, a material impact on the ecosystem evaluation and the success of the companies. You know, we went into this post-bubble world, there were 350 tech unicorns. It would take four years of a very healthy IPO market to digest that. And I think to what your point is, a lot of them aren't going to turn out to be what they were worth. It's just going to take longer to kill them because there was so much capital out there. What's your play going forward? Or how do you react to this situation as somebody investing in startups and funds and all that? We've been preaching to our clients, you know, in 2000, I'll give you some examples. In 2021, we thought the fundraising environment was incredible. You know, we took one of our big holdings in Airbnb public in late, 20, late 2020. In 2021, we raised a ton of capital for the businesses. In 2022, it was all about being more conservative, extenuating, extending runway if necessary. I mean, 70% of our assets are, are high cash flow businesses. Anyway, we don't do a lot of venture. We do more what we call more growth equity later stage. We've had people in a conservative operating posture for a while. And right now, the big question that companies are asking is we have eight companies that are pre-IPO. This will put those dates back. For sure, where we were saying we thought some of the strongest, biggest names could go out in the fall and that would be getting the IPO market. I think that's probably now closer to the beginning of next year and it's going to take some time. So this all have real reverberations. Reverberations, Eric, in the private market just take longer to play through. What we're telling our investors is this is setting up to be a great vintage if you have a lot of dry powder and capital because the, you know, the leverage, if you will, is switching even more firmly in the hands of the GBs who have capital. You're not competing with venture debt anymore. And, you know, I think that there's good. You're saying good good for valuations makes venture. Yeah, valuations come down and the best companies will be able to raise capital. But, you know, it's also means it's going to be a really good investing period for people that have scale. So the other thing is right now, Eric, the biggest thing that we're seeing is one of the biggest, a lot of distressed GPs. A lot of GPs didn't sell anything over the last couple of years and didn't return Hmm. capital to their investors. And so we're seeing investors, even in the companies that we're in, some of our best cash flow businesses are just selling us shares at a discount because there is a lot of distress in the GP system before Silicon Valley Bank. Now you add that on you're top. You're buying a venture firm's shares in the company you believe in, or you're buying out an LP's interest in those venture firms? Thanks for the clarification. Buying out other venture firms that are on the cap tables of our companies that might have gotten in earlier or did something else because they haven't been returning capital to their investors. And, you know, that would... It was the opposite of what we were doing the last two years. We returned, you know, billion dollars of capital in the last 18 months to our investors. And so I think it's important that, you know, that you realize there's a lot of stress in the system right now, and that will make for opportunities. And one of the opportunities is buying from other GPs. The other opportunity is good companies that need operating intervention. There's companies that need capital for acquisitions and growth and make up for the whole and sell value banks. So there's going to be a lot what, of what are, Give me, like, 
AUM or funds you're investing out of, like with Westcap, I feel like you like to live a little under the radar, but since I have you <laughs> anyway, just educate people a little bit on what, we're, we're what you're doing. Okay. So, is this like, how much is this your, your, your wealth versus LPs or yeah, just give me a uh, sense. It's of, a, so it's a fully third party. The biggest investors in the fund are, are the partners themselves, but we're at $8 billion firm and we do typically later stage after VCs and we invest in the operating scaling of the businesses. And that's what we've always done. That's been 25 years of starting three businesses that got to unicorn status. And we, that's what we focus on. So we focus, we just do marketplaces are because they're asset light and they scale. You know, we build our positions in the companies as we gain confidence in the, in the management teams. And I'm happy to say we're top performing growth fund in the Cambridge index. And it's because we have an operating strategy. So that's why we were talking before, take like treasury. So we manage centrally treasury for all the companies, their cash, their positions, their liabilities. We have our own money market fund. And so we, Go in and operationally improve the companies and then scale them. And that's our, that's our strategy. Do you think we're going to see like a lot of funds go away or just, I mean, it feels like if you didn't return a lot of money in 2021, you know, some of these managers are going to be challenged. And to fit it into the SVB question, I guess it's like, what are unlimited partners heads right now? Because I mean, they just face this potentially like existential crisis <laughs> for all their venture investments. Do you think that's going to? Breed a lot more conservatism and a little bit more action from LPs in terms of shifting away from the venture industry. Yep. I was just at the Institutional Limited Partner Association or ILPA board meeting last week, and we were talking about these issues. I would say most on the mind of the LPs is who returned capital before things cracked? Who's best positioned? They think, frankly, during the go-go days, the last five years, that some managers behaved badly, raised funds that were too big, put them in the ground too quickly, didn't pay attention to valuations. And the last pieces are, a lot of them are very skeptical of valuations. They're looking at the disconnect between, you look at the NASDAQ, you look at the private markets, and they scratch their heads going, well, how is your fund not down at that level? So there's a little bit of suspicion. I'd say the big takeaway is the LPs are now concentrating in the better performing, bigger managers. And there's a lot of worry in the venture space that some of the funds have just gotten too big. And they're doing too many deals too fast with too little due diligence. And so when you see some of these kind of spectacular blowups, the LPs are attributing it to a breakdown of the risk system because VCs are really set up to go find great companies, develop ideas, find a go-to-market fit, maybe not do two, three, four hundred million dollar checks in companies at an early stage. And so I think there's a view that that it'll calm down. But you know, from every crisis comes a good thing. We're actually launching our treasury fund and our treasury platform as a third-party service because I think this proves something that. I think startup companies can do a better job managing their balance sheets and exposures. So I think there's a real business opportunity. Hmm. You're like selling software or what do you? What yeah. So we built software that connects all the banks so that you can move around your bank balances. You can see where you're getting a certain level of interest rate versus not. And you can look at, go even deeper. Like at Airbnb, I can tell you how much we had in each different sector, how many investment grade bonds we had, how many treasuries we had, et cetera. And then we could manage interest rate exposure. So it's automating treasury because most companies, before they go public, don't even have a treasury. Hmm. It's just not, it's not something they focus on because you just put the money in the bank and you just don't think about it. Right. I mean, that was a funny dynamic in terms of like, if you want to say, oh, depositors shouldn't get bailed out because they're like sort of supposed to be savvy customers. It's like so many of these startups don't even have CFOs. You know, they're, they're not necessarily the savviest shoppers of like which banks to go to, you know, and to some degree they deferred to their investors. And it will be interesting to see how much blame like VCs get from startups in terms of the decisions they made. And 
I think it'll change. I think even at early stages, people will start to realize that treasury and cash management is an incredibly important part of being a successful company, whether or not you're a treasurer. You don't need somebody who's like making market bets. But um, there's subtle ways that you can put money to work. You can manage your cash cycle. Like you can create something very powerful in almost any business if you get the treasury piece right. Yeah. My last question, I mean, is this going to be a hard year for the tech industry? I mean, how long does this downturn last? It feels like this really killed any hope that, you know, I don't know, there would be a rebound and we just move on from this, at least in my mind. January was a great month in the markets. Looked like it was coming back. The bankers I've been talking to are seeing people dust off their previously filed S1s. We've got two of them that we did it with. We're starting to get a sign and then this comes about. I don't, I'm a very positive person by nature, but I'll keep <laughs> my analysis. You know, you had the two-year treasury was five, as I said, 507 two weeks ago. Today, it's at 425. Typically what happens when there's a rate rise, the second year of the rate rises hits harder and the typical impact on GDP is a negative two and a half percent. So we are in the second year now. And right now, GDP is clocking in at about one or it's actually slightly lower, about 0.95. So you could see this turning more to a hard landing, I hate to say. I think it's going to be a tough year. This will be the tougher of the two years. Last year was about valuations. This one will be about growth and funding. Capital will get squeezed. And if you're saying GDP is shrinking, then it's also affects like consumer spending and sort of yeah. the revenue for these companies. Consumer defaults are creeping up. Obviously, mortgage rate things. There are things that are hitting the consumer hard. You've got high energy prices. You've got consumer. You know, mortgage rates are going. I've gone up quite a bit, and so you've got a lot of pressure on the consumer, and it's starting to play itself through. So I think watch when the spring and summer travel season comes around. I think you'll see it down and flat from where it was last year, and that's the beginning of the signs of discretionary spending coming in. And so you know, the, the worst is yet to come. They raised rates so fast, Eric. The shock to the body after so many years of such a Dubbish, you know, stance and zero rates. It's it's going to take some time to work through the system. LT, thanks so much for coming on the show and explaining it to everybody. Really appreciate yeah. it. Eric, you're doing a great job informing people. So thanks for all your work. Thank you. That's our episode. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Lawrence Tosi. Like, comment, subscribe. Go to newcomer.co and follow along on the Substack. Thanks so much to Tommy Heron, our editor, Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Young Chomsky for the music. I'm Eric Newcomer. Thanks so much. See you next Tuesday. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.